Hey everyone, and welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock. Today we'll be talking about a disaster colloquially known as Italy's Hiroshima. Although it's less recognized in scope and impact than its Japanese counterpart, the Seveso dioxin cloud had repercussions that changed the trajectory of modern chemical manufacturing. Today we'll take a look at the chemical disaster that befell the small town of Seveso in northern Italy. I hope you enjoy today's episode and as always, thank you for listening. Million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air The number of weather related disasters has increased fivefold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California, the Red Sea corals are under threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. The town of Seveso has a very rich history. Geographically, it is situated in northern Italy, in the Lombardy region, and it's about 13 miles north of Milan. Indeed, the town's origins date back to the 3rd century BCE. Originally, it was used as a military staging post for the Roman conquest of Gaul. When our story starts, in 1976, the town was home to roughly 17,000 people. It's said to be a scenic stop on the way to the Alps in Switzerland, and the town was known for making artisan furniture and boosted some old-world architecture, such as churches, government buildings, villas, and many of these are actually still standing today. Against those vestiges were hallmarks of modernization, such as gyms, hospitals, and even a chemical manufacturing plant located in the nearby city of Meta. This chemical manufacturing plant was referred to as ICMESA, named after the Chemical Industries SA. The ICMESA was itself a subsidiary of Gavadin, which in turn was a subsidiary of Hoffman La Roche, commonly known as Roche. We'll just call it Roche moving forward. Now, Roche is a Swiss multinational healthcare company that operates worldwide under two divisions, pharmaceuticals and diagnostics. The ICM ESA plant manufactured a chemical known as 245-trichlorophenol, or TCP, which was used in herbicides and for the preparation of hexachlorophene, a disinfectant used in medical soaps. This chemical was well mentioned in our episode about Agent Orange. In fact, this is part of the rainbow herbicides, this TCP. 
but has a very dark history. And we'll get into that a little bit further in this episode. On July 10th, 1976, the town of Seveso would be catapulted on the global scene when an accident at the plant would release a cloud of toxic chemicals that wafted out and then lingered in the surrounding area. Although the accident happened at the plant located in Meta, the town of Seveso would be most greatly affected. And of course, this disaster now is known as the Seveso Disaster. So let's hop in. July 9th, 1976, which is when our story starts, was a Friday. Back then, Italian law stipulated that plant operations be shut down over the weekends. So this meant no chemicals were to be made over the weekend. On that Friday morning, there was a discussion about whether or not to start a new batch of high-grade TCP. Now, this TCP was produced in the plant's building B. So a foreman of Building B discussed the production program with Dr. Paolo Paletti, who was the director of production at this specific plant. Now ultimately, it was decided to fill a reaction vessel, or rather a mixing reactor, with the various starting materials needed to brew this toxic concoction. And so, the brewing actually began around 4 p.m. on that Friday. And this was 10 hours later than it would have usually been started. Now, of course, it's made up of many ingredients, so these were added to a cauldron, so to speak. And it's said the desired reactions would typically take or last about 12 to 14 hours. Now, the Roach Company literature, published 30 years after the fact, states that on Saturday, July 10th, temperature diagrams showed that the desired reaction was complete. With the completion of this, the foreman in charge of Building B thereby gave out the order to interrupt the final distillation process, which was in fact not complete. In fact, only about 15% of the solvent was distilled. Furthermore, the final stage of adding water to cool off the mixture was not completed either. Now this is a good time to mention that the cooling systems had to be activated manually, not automatically. So I'm sure you're asking, what happened next? Well, the heating was turned off, the vessel mixed its contents for an additional 15 minutes after the shutoff process was initiated, and the last recorded temperature of the contents was noted to be 158 degrees Celsius. 
So the night shift ended at 6 a.m. And workers signed off and exited the building, leaving only the cleaning crew behind at the time. And so with this just being shut down relatively recently, the reactor was basically left unattended with the unfinished mixture still sitting inside, with many people outside of that group not knowing it was even there. On Saturday afternoon, while life was unrolling as per usual in Seveso, you know, children playing outside, folks gardening and doing grocery shopping, etc., the mixing reactor in the plant was growing dangerously hot and incredibly unstable. Because all of the systems had been shut off for the weekend, the cooling systems, which, mind you, were manual, were not at all operating. Now, this was significant because the chemical reaction had not, in fact, been completed. Like I stated earlier, the final distillation process was interrupted and, as such, chemicals were still active and at play in the mixing vat. As the afternoon rolled by, the temperatures and the pressure inside the mixing reactor were getting very high and increasingly unstable. Now, the temperatures increased because this was an exothermic reaction. It was giving off heat as the reaction took place. Now, a reminder of the two issues at play here. There was no automatic cooling system in place, so you have to know it's getting hot to turn on cooling rather than having any sort of safety net that would automatically kick the cooling system on at a certain temperature. And on top of this, no one was monitoring, so they didn't know it was hot. They didn't know the mixtures were there. In fact, most people outside of that group that had started the initial batch did not know it was there. Now, once both the heat and pressure became unsustainable, a pressure release valve blew out. When this valve blew out, there was a reddish cloud of toxic vapors that were blown out into the air. This gas cloud contained sodium hydroxide, ethylene glycol, sodium trichlorophenate, and xylene, and it also contained tetrachloral benzodioxin, which you may remember, as I stated, from our episode on Agent Orange. Now, it should be mentioned that we know this cloud was released, but there isn't an exact quantity that is known to have been released. In fact, sources vary quite quite a bit on this amount. Now, around this time, it is also unfortunate that the winds were blowing in a southeasterly direction, meaning that the communities of nearby Seveso, Meta, Sassano Moderno, and Desio would soon be affected. Eventually, 
a foreman would notice that something was amiss at the plant. So some sources say that the foreman or employee was just strolling by and happened to be around and noticed the gas cloud and the Roach website seems to infer that there was actually staff on site, but that doesn't really align with the whole cease operations on the weekend rule. So whatever the instance may be, some rules were definitely broken and many people would suffer for that. So the foreman alerts Dr. Clemente Barney the deputy head of production at the plant, and he's actually on call that day. Now, this Dr. Barney heads out to the plant, where him and others decide to turn on the cooling system so that the aerosol mixture can no longer escape the mixing reactors. Now, there is an attempt to do a cursory assessment of the immediate surroundings of the plant, but nothing is reported as looking amiss. But just to be safe, Dr. Barney instructs locals not to eat homegrown fruits and vegetables at the time. Without success, Dr. Barney does attempt to reach local health officers. And because of this lack of ability to locate and communicate the issue with the health officer, the local police were notified of the incident and were instructed to report any damages from locals to the ICMESA plant. On Sunday the 11th, Dr. Barney and Dr. Pauletti further inspect the surrounding area for signs of plant damage. So Herwig von Zwell, technical director of the plant, was finally reached on this day as well. And, and there was apparently trouble reaching him because he was away for the weekend. So once the three are finally able to communicate with each other, they decide on the following plan. Step one was reach the local health officer which, mind you, they have been attempting since the day prior. Now, step two was visit the mayor of Meta. Step three, visit the mayor of Seveso. And step four, contact the police. Now, I know I've already stated they contacted the police. They just contacted the local police surrounding this site. So this contact the police step would be to further contact any other policing agencies of the other local towns and villages. Now, the fifth step, which I think is most important at this point, you know, because the chemical's already been released at this point, I would say, you know, letting locals know, hey, don't consume anything that may be contaminated, that is a big deal. But step five was sending samples from the vessel for analysis. It is interesting that the fifth step was to send these samples off for afterthought. It's also interesting because this 
wasn't anything new. They had been creating these chemicals, using these chemicals, so they should have a pretty good idea of what was in this mixture. Now, local inhabitants in both Meta and Seveso are warned by the plant with the help of those local police officers as bodyguards, and they're told not to eat local fruits and vegetables. By Monday, July 12th, Building B was actually shut down. Now, it's noted in Roach's literature that the building was shut down, whereas in other sources, it's stated that employees actually refused to go into the plant. So it may have been more of a saving face sort of situation when they just come out and say they've shut it down for the health of others. So it's determined that within a few hours of the plant spewing the noxious cloud, 37,000 people from the surrounding area would unknowingly be exposed to dioxin. In fact, the first victims of the cloud of dioxin would be animals and children nearby. So like I said, inhabitants of the surrounding areas were being warned not to eat locally grown food and vegetables. Now it was actually reported that vegetable crops and fruits in the surrounding areas looked like they had been burnt or were incredibly wilted in a very short period of time. Now the disclosure that was given was that the run-of-the-mill herbicide, you know, nothing special here, had accidentally escaped from the plant. That's essentially what they're telling them. They didn't tell locals that it was dioxin. And I guess to be fair, the lab results hadn't come back yet. But like I said earlier, they should have known the chemicals that they were using in the reaction and what the resultant chemical was going to be of those reactions. You don't just make something willy-nilly and have no idea what it is or what goes into making that. So they at least had an idea of what could be present. So shortly after this release of the dioxin, chickens and rabbits, which were used for food, started falling dead. And it's actually noted that cats and wild birds were seemingly dropping dead as well. On Tuesday the 13th of July, only a few days after the initial release, Dr. Pauletti and Alfo Marcolini, the commercial head of the plant, were made aware that small animals had begun dying. Now, it's estimated that within days, around 3,300 poultry and rabbits were found dead in the surrounding areas. Now, because of this, emergency slaughtering of animals was undertaken in order to prevent any poison from entering the food chain. By 1978, over 80,000 animals 
will have been preemptively killed for this same reason. Now, around July 14th, the first signs of skin inflammation were reported in children. So children had begun developing rashes all over their bodies, which would be identified as chloracne. Now, this chloracne is directly linked to dioxin exposure. It's, again, also a symptom that we brought up in the Agent Orange episode because of that dioxin exposure. Now, it's characterized as a rare skin eruption of blackheads, cysts, and nodules specifically around the face, neck, and armpits, and it may even lead to open sores. Mild cases will disappear over time, but severe cases may last for years or even your entire life. Interestingly, chloracne is similar to hormonal acne in appearance, but the sudden onslaught of this skin disease in a slew of young children left little doubt that it was directly correlated with the cloud of dioxin. And it also was resistant to general acne treatments. There was only 12 to 16 children that were reported to being. They reported intestinal problems and high fever. And so they were admitted into local hospitals. Now, the doctors treating them were unaware of what could be causing the lesions as dioxin was not confirmed by the plant's officials at this time. In the interim, analysis of the contents of the mixing vat had come back with trace amounts of dioxin being reported to Von Zwell. It would take 10 days after exposure before plant officials would admit that people had accidentally been exposed to dioxin. Now, of course, people are not dumb, and so locals and the media were actually starting to suspect this even before it was officially announced. And it was primarily due to the major side effect of chloracne, which I said was directly caused by dioxin exposure. Now it won't sound like a lot, but it was estimated that between 0.2 and 1 kilogram of dioxin had been released into the air. And just for reference, 1 kilogram of dioxin is actually enough to kill 50,000 people. The affected areas are were not immediately evacuated, although there was talk of evacuation once the presence of dioxin was officially established. Now, the affected areas are split into three zones. So, Zone A is Seveso, and it's considered the hot spot. So, in this Zone A, TCDD, or these dioxin, concentrations were 
greater than 50 micrograms per square meter. And within this zone, there was 736 residents. Zone B, on the other hand, had soil concentrations of TCDD between 5 and 50 micrograms per square meter. And within this zone, there was 4,700 residents. Now, the largest zone, luckily, had a negligible concentration of, TCs, of TCDD, and this zone had roughly 31,800 residents within it. Now, usually the companies are somewhat of the villains. Now, obviously, they were kind of slow to getting the word out initially, but it would be senior chemists from Roach that were the impetus for the eventual evacuation. In fact, they urged local authorities to bite the bullet and start evacuation. Residents of Seveso, mind you, in Zone A, would be evacuated between July 26th and August 2nd, which is a long ways from that initial release. And all activities in this zone were ordered to cease. So, due to this evacuation, there were effects on two major industries, 37 cottage industries, 61 farms, and 4,000 kitchen gardens. To ensure no one would re-enter this area, there would be a 12-foot fence that was erected around the entire perimeter of the area. Now, no one would be allowed in the area without government permission. And it should be noted that these residents underwent immediate medical attention and clinical laboratory tests. Now, when it came to Zone B, in August, pregnant women and children were asked to leave the area daily in order to reduce chronic exposure. And that was kind of the extent of what the authorities told them to do, other than agricultural activities being prohibited in that zone. So essentially... Officials recognized there is dioxin here. It's not very much. All you can really do is leave for a little while every day and come back. You know, either way, they're still getting dosed with dioxin. So, when it comes down to zone R, mind you, the largest zone, farming was restricted, but it was not prohibited. And that whole leave for a little while every day was not a thing because contaminant levels were so low or practically non-existent. Within all of this, it was actually estimated that around 5,000 acres of land had been contaminated. So, of that 5,000 acres, a good amount was 
completely useless. And like I said, the rest of it in zone R was just restricted. I see MESA's initial reaction was rather sluggish and uncoordinated. And they also seemed to not want to cop up to the dioxin poisoning from the very beginning, which meant that precious time was wasted when it came to evacuating that zone A. Now, this was also due in part to having a hard time reaching the local health officer, having to secure meetings and strategize with the mayors of those several communities, and utilizing local police forces to relay information to the people instead of using a centralized system like what we would most likely be able to use today. Now, once it was determined that a cleanup needed to be done, it actually took five years in order for the process to actually be put into place. Contaminated material from Zone A ultimately needed to be sequestered from the environment. This material was placed into two enormous steel containers. Contaminated material put in the steel containers, which was about 200,000 cubic meters of material, consisted of contaminated topsoil, so the first 40 centimeters of topsoil was removed, and materials from destroyed buildings, including the demolished ICMESA building, which was destroyed in 1982. And of course, this material would also encompass the carcasses of dead and contaminated animals, as well as those household goods from the town of Seveso. When all was done being cleaned up, the two steel containers were then encased in concrete. Now the whole concept was designed to sequester the materials from the environment for at least 300 years. And so the idea here would be that by that 300 years end, the dioxin levels would be rendered harmless. For some reason, the contaminated clothing worn by cleanup crews was meant to be stored in the same type of barrels used to store nuclear waste, but not put into the containers that contained the rest of the material. So they would use 41 nuclear waste style storage barrels to seal away all of that contaminated clothing. So in terms of these barrels, Roach, which mind you was the parent company, stated that the barrels would be disposed of in a responsible manner, which meant that they needed to be incinerated. Now this is the most frustrating aspects of this story, because this seemingly obvious response was actually re-examined over the years, and it was found that the barrels had, in fact, not 
been disposed of as intended. Roach actually subcontracted the disposal of the barrels to another independent company, which was Manisman Italiana. Now, this company agreed to do so only if it could include a clause stating that they would not notify Roach of where the disposal site was, which you would think would be a incredibly large red flag right in your face. But, you know, when it comes to money, which I'm sure was the case here, you know, things happen, I guess. So, this highly unusual clause, which should have been a red flag, wasn't really a big deal. And Roach agreed to this, and with the oversight of a notary republic, signed away the contract, and that was when they gave up their side of this issue. Or so they thought. On December 13th, 1982, the notary gave a sworn statement stating that the barrels had been disposed of effectively. Although in February of 1983, a French language Swiss television show followed the trace of the barrels to St. Quentin in northern France, whereupon the trace vanished. Now, ultimately, in May of that same year, the barrels were actually found abandoned in an unused abattoir in a small village in northern France, very much unincinerated. It was later found that Manisman Italiana had itself subcontracted the disposal of the barrels to two other subcontractors. So this was sort of a sub-subcontractor situation. And it was really like everyone was kind of just playing hot potato with these barrels, but pocketing the money for the disposal. Now eventually... Roach retook possession of the barrels from a military base in Sisson, France. And after all of this, they finally incinerated the barrels themselves. Now, it was nine years after the fact, but this officially put an end to this entire ordeal. In July of 1977, Residents of Zone A were allowed to return home, and many of them found that their homes were intentionally destroyed to reduce the amount of contaminant buildup. Now, residents of Zone R resumed agricultural activities in this year as well, and later on in 1984, Zones A and B were declared decontaminated, indicating that remediation works were finally complete. At the end of all this, Roach was forced to pay millions of dollars in fines and financed reparations. 
Now, sources place the financial liability of Roach close to $168 million. There were also five ICMESA officials that were convicted of criminal negligence for their role in this disaster. Now, they were ultimately all able to appeal these convictions, but I just thought it was interesting to know that there was actually persons held accountable criminally. A civil suit on behalf of the civilian victims was also rejected around this time. And in 1980, Paolo Pauletti, who you'll recall was the director of production at the plant, was shot and killed by Italian radical left-wing organization Primia Linea, or Frontline, for what they claimed was, quote, uncaring capitalism causing social and environmental damage. The accountability level in the Seveso disaster is questionable, but it did reform some laws when it comes to the manufacturing of chemicals. In 1982, the Seveso Directive was implemented by the European Community, or EC, and it aims to, one, prevent accidents like the Seveso disaster, two, improve overall response to industrial disasters, and third, enforce an EC-wide regulatory safety framework. When it comes down to it, the Seveso disaster was a result of human error. Employees at the plant left the mixture unattended over the weekend, but they were also not trained or aware of the possibility of a runaway reaction. Although scientific literature at the time leaned towards the possibility of a runaway reaction forming around 320 degrees Celsius temperature, similar incidents of dioxin being formed suggested the temperature needed to achieve this reaction was actually closer to about half of that at 170 degrees Celsius. Now remember, the last recorded temperature in this particular mixing reactor was 158 degrees Celsius. And mind you, it should be added that there was some mechanical fault as well. The blow-off valve did work as it should have. Maybe that should have been blown off into another container or something of that effect. But also remember the cooling system was manual when it really could or should have been more of an automatic system, which I'm hoping went into place after this issue, which I didn't actually find in the research. Now, the sluggish and uncoordinated response was a concerted effort on behalf of the company officials and local officials as well. Now, no one wanted to cry wolf of course. 
Now, zone A and Seveso, which share basically the same area, have largely recovered from the disaster. The two giant steel containers are buried under an area now known as the Seveso Oak Forest Park. Now, the Oak Park is seen as a positive rehabilitation project. Of course, there were human health impacts, but these are actually difficult to assess. As many people have left the Seveso region, now as such, it has been difficult to quantify the health impacts without being able to test or interview those residents. Now, many years later, in a 1996 study, it was found that TCDD was present in women and children from zones A and B. Although the long-term effects aren't as solid, one thing is for sure. The immediate effects of chloracne and the psychological effects of displacement were very visible and tangible at the time. And of course, other effects like cancer and liver disease are harder to trace in general, especially with the population not all returning to the area. One other study on Seveso titled a titled a paradoxical classic disaster resumed the psychological effects of the disaster as such. Quote, the Seveso disaster had a particularly traumatic effect on exposed local populations because its seriousness was recognized only gradually. The community was divided by rancorous conflict. Indeed, the inner turbulence caused by the ineffectiveness of the town leaders and company officials and the idea that some people were pushing for evacuation and others weren't definitely brewed distrust and resentment. Perhaps the darker legacy of the disaster is that it helped us better understand how dioxin can be formed in runaway reactions when chemical products are being manufactured. Additionally, we are better able to chart the effects of dioxins in humans. A comprehensive study of Seveso states, quote, much of what we know and can learn about the risks of dioxin exposure on human health arose from the tragic circumstances of Seveso. And indeed, it is a tragic legacy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Initial research was done by Chloe Kibbe. I want to remind you that we do have an Instagram page, we post photos and descriptions related to each topic over there. That is at the Chronic Failure Podcast. And 
I would greatly appreciate if you would give us a like and follow on whatever listening platform you use. This is going to help get the word out about what we're doing over here and allow us to grow and maybe even increase the scope of topics that we discuss. Of course, we do have an email address. If you have topic ideas, if you have questions, if you just want to chat, that all sounds great. You can send us an email at info at chronicfailurepodcast.com. Next week's episode is going to be another episode that involves a gas cloud. Now, it will obviously be different chemicals, but of course, it is just as important. So, this is the Bhopal disaster or Bhopal gas tragedy. Now, the Bhopal gas tragedy was a chemical accident on the night of the 2nd of December in 1984 at the Union Carbide India Limited pesticide plant in Bhopal, Madhya Pradesh, India. Now, it's considered the world's worst industrial disaster. In fact, over 500,000 people in the small towns around the plant were exposed to the highly toxic gas, methyl isocyanate. Now, estimates vary on the death toll, with the official number of immediate deaths being 2,259. I hope you'll join me again next week for this great episode. Until then... Have a good one.